We're back on. Okay, so today's class is going to be uh, a very interesting topic. Out of you know, this is one of my favorite books because he tackles so many interesting topics. Uh, it's for whatever reason I still haven't figured out. Most people do not study it, uh, but this next section, which we're going to read, I found the most interesting because what he tackles. Uh, this might be a little bit dark, but he tackles what exactly is Gehenna? What is hell? Right and. It's interesting. I don't know, because we don't talk about it very much, you know, in Jewish sources. We, 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 we probably know it's, it's not exactly whatever image we have in our minds of a, you know, horned red figure with a tail and a pitchfork and burning fires. But as we'll see, it might not be, you know, it, it might have some similarities with that, right? So what is, I mean, I'll just start over here. And I think I asked this last time, we, we, uh, a few times ago. How would you, if someone were to ask you, what is Judaism's perception of Gehenna, of hell? What would you say, the purgatory? It's bad. And that much burning. good. And that, that's the most important thing, but you nailed it on the head. It's, it's bad. It's burning. It's burning. Okay. Okay. Any other thoughts? And you hope you don't meet any of your family or friends. <laughs> Fair. That's true as well. That's true as well. Okay. So it's bad. Some level of maybe burning fire. Do we all agree with that? I know the other time we brought it up, some people said more about shame, less about fire. Um, so we'll see. We'll see, but I don't think, I, I'll be the first to acknowledge, I cannot describe Gehenim to you, you know, prior to learning this book. Because it's, we acknowledge it exists, and like I said, I'd say it's bad, but beyond that, I don't really know what it is. So what the Ramban does for us is he goes, he collects numerous sources and suggests the following. And again, you don't, I, I'm not aware of others who disagree. So this is really, again, I, I think we spoke about this when we started this book. There is not so much, you know, when it comes to Jewish law, there is endless literature, endless literature about every detail of Jewish law. We are an action-oriented people. It's about what we do. It's about what we do. What we believe is important, but the front and center is what we do. And um, therefore, we don't have as much literature about what we believe. And certainly when it comes to this, the idea of Gehenim, I don't, there's almost nothing. There's really almost nothing. So with that in mind, let's jump in. We're going to walk away today. I don't know if it's the most inspiring class day, but we'll be a little bit more knowledgeable. Be a little more knowledgeable. When we stopped on the street, say, hey, you're Jewish. What do you guys believe about Gehenna? You'll now know the answer. Okay? Sounds good. Okay. Being knowledgeable is good too. Okay. Kach shanu b'menachos. This is what we, so he's going to first begin by quoting a num, a numerous sources. Kach shanu b'menachos. He begins by quoting a Gemara in Menachos. Vaf mi Okay, so it is a, a verse in, uh, in Eov uh, that the Gemara quotes, and it's talking about the fact that Hashem draws a person away from distress. But the words mipit tsar, tsara means distress, but also tsar means something which is constricted. Or the two go together. When you're in distress, you often feel like you're constricted, right? You don't feel expansive. When you feel like, you ever feel like anxious or you feel nervous, right? You feel a little bit smaller, like you're squishing yourself in. So uh, the literal, the, the simple meaning is that God draws you away from distress, but there is this term, mipitzar, from this narrow opening, mipitzar. So the Gemara says, mipiha shegehenim tsar. So it means that the mouth of Gehenim is narrow. She'ashna tsabur besocha. So that the smoke gathers inside of it, kind of like, a, like an oven or a kettle or something like that, right? Basically, it has a narrow opening. What the Gemara is telling us over here is that the opening of Gehenna is narrow, kind of like an oven, that the smoke gathers in and then the smoke uh, goes through that narrow opening, okay? V'shem might you might say, k'shem you might think that just like the top is narrow, so too the entire Gehenna is narrow. Tamalomar, the Pasuk says, hamik hirchiv, uh, which means that it's deep and wide. Okay? Shema tomar emba 
So you might think there's no wood in Gehenim, Tamalomar. The pasta continues and says, Midurasa Eish, Veitim Harbe. It has the fire, like a bonfire type of fire and much wood. Okay, so source number one seems to describe Gehenim a little bit like that, what we would describe as like a Christian image. Okay, it's very large, we're learning. There's smoke, there's fire, there's wood. Okay, now of course, as you're reading this, you're hearing this, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, maybe this is allegory, right? Maybe this is metaphor. And maybe it is. And there certainly are some who do understand this as metaphor. But he's not done yet. He's going to quote some more sources. He says, He says, uh, further sources describe the, the measurements of Gehenim. Okay, by the width and length. Amru uh, Tainus, the Gemara in Tainus tells us, Olam echad mishishim began. That the world is one sixtieth of the Gan. Okay, we'll keep on reading. The Gan echad mishishim be'edin, and Gan, the garden, is one sixtieth of Eden. Okay, so Eden, there's the garden of Eden. We always assume that's one place. Right, the Gemara is telling us actually there's two places. There's a place called Eden, Eden. And there's Gan Be'eden, right? That's actually the, the proper read of the Pasuk, is that there's a garden in Eden, okay? In Eden. Interesting. Not our focus today, but basically saying the world is 160th. It's, it's one, one, and Gan is 60, is 60 times that. The Eden is 60 times larger than that, okay? And here we go. And the Eden Echem Mishishim Gehenim. And Eden is 160th of Gehenim. So Gehenim is tremendous, right? Eden is a little smaller, Gan smaller, the world is. Tiny, right? I, mean, I hope by now you've all seen those beautiful pictures that NASA just put out, right? We think about the world. It ain't so small, right? It's a large place, right? And nonetheless, Gan is larger, Aden is larger, Gehenim is larger. The Gemara concludes, Nimsa kol olam It comes out that the entire world is almost like a, uh, like a pot cover to a pot, the pot being Gehenim and the world being the cover. Okay, basically in terms of proportion, you know, think, imagine a big pot and the world is just kind of like a cover. It's a small, in, you know, a small, in, tiny little thing in comparison to the cover. Okay, so now here we have a Gemara that's describing for us the size of Gehenna. Okay, the Ode and further, Simulo Psachim. The Gemara also described different doorways of Gehenna. Amru Be'erevin, another Gemara that says, Shlosha Psachim Yeshlo Gehenna. There are three doors to Gehenna. Echa Bemidbar, there is one in the desert. Right, this is a reference to whom? To the people of Korach. And they all get swept up into a hole. But the Pasuk says they go to a place called Sheol. Sheol is another term for Gehenim. It means hell, purgatory, right? So clearly there is an opening to Gehenim in the desert. Okay, and there's an individual who went down to the ocean uh, and went to Gehenim. Who, uh, we'll see who this is. You'll tell me who this is referenced to in a moment. I cried out from the stomach of Sheol. Again, another word for Gehenim. Anyone know who that person is? Jonah, excellent. Yonah, right? Yonah, it says about Yonah, Yonah's describing himself. He says, I cried out from the stomach of Sheol. So again, the simple read of that Pasuk could be that it's allegory. He's saying, you know, he's in this stomach of this whale and he's saying it's like hell in there. We can understand that. It's probably pretty suffocating. But the Gemara understands that literally, that the, that the, that the, the whale actually took him from a, a number of places and one of the places they stopped was Gehenim. He had a little uh, journey, and one of the places he stopped was Gehenim. Va'amru. Okay. Um, no, 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 no. Okay, let's go further. Va'amru le'inyan iser hatmana. This is the most fascinating of the Gemaras, okay? There is, a, there is a prohibition called hatmana. Hatmana means insulation, okay? You are not allowed to insulate something. Insulation. Hatmana. Hatmana with a tet. Hatmana. Okay, so you're not allowed to insulate something. On Shabbos. We're not going to get into all the laws right now, but there's a general prohibition against insulating a hot item on Shabbos. 
Okay, so this next Gemara we're about to quote is having not a, a Midrashic discussion, Agadaic discussion. There is a Halachic discussion. Okay, it's describing the laws of Shabbos. And it says, okay, Hatmana Bechamei Tveria. The Gemara asks, are you, Aleph, you ever been to the springs of Tveria? The hot springs of Tveria? Okay, next time you're in Israel, you should go. Beautiful, amazing. Every, Israel has everything, right? They have these beautiful hot springs. And so the Gemara questions, there was large communities in, in, in Tveria, in the, you know, in, in the ancient world. And the Gemara questions, are you allowed to place an item into the hot water of Tveria? Is that an issue of insulation? Okay, don't worry so much about the halachic, what, what, but the bottom line is they're questioning, are you allowed to place things on Shabbos into this hot water? Okay, and that, that's the question being asked. And the Gemara says, told us or nihu. And the Gemara says, it's the, the way to understand the fires, of, the, the heat of Chamei Tveria is understanding that it's water heated up by a fire. Okay, which is not necessarily the way we'd understand it. But he's saying it's water heated up by fire. Which fire? Dechalfa apischa degehenim. Because the waters of Tveria pass by the entrance of Gehenim. Okay? Take it, leave it. The bottom line is, the Gemara over here is ruling practical law in re- because of their understanding of where the doorways of Gehenim actually are. So if you were to stop over here, right, and ask yourself a question. When you read these passages, and there are many more, I skipped them because it got too, 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 too extensive. Are these allegory, metaphor, or are they describing something real? Something, by real, I mean something tangible. Are they describing things in a more literal fashion or in a more allegorical fashion? It sounds literal, right? Meaning, in the first earlier ones, you could argue. Maybe yes, maybe no, the size, maybe yes. But finally, when you get to Gemaras that start ruling on Jewish law, based on their understanding of where the door of Gehenim is, it sounds like there actually is a physical place called Gehenim, some physical place which has doorways somewhere in the world, deserts, somewhere in the sea, somewhere in Tiberia, okay? And, uh, and it has these physical dimensions, right? So he's, he's trying to prove from these sources that Gehenim is an actual, somewhat physical place. We'll, we'll, we'll describe it. We'll get into some of the challenges to that in a moment. But that's what he's trying to explain in these opening sources. Yes, stop. Um, just listening to this, I think it sounds like hell is larger than heaven. Mm-hmm. That's what it does sound like. You have to be perfect to be in heaven. And if you did one <clears throat> little something. Uh-huh. So to, to a, a quick recap of a lot of what we were discussing for some of the past little while is that most people do spend some time in Gehenna. Right? Most people, because we do have to be, in other words, if there is any blemish, something we were discussing in the earlier classes, and is that you know, we come, the only way we have full access to Gan Eden and ultimately Olam Abba is with a pure soul. Every time we do something wrong, we blemish that soul. The only way you're getting through the doors is with a perfectly clean soul. So, one of two options. You suffer here, cleanse the soul. You suffer in the next world, cleanse the soul. But there's no free lunches, okay? In other words, there's no way of getting around. Bottom line is, God is just. And if we do something wrong, then there's no looking the other way. It impacts us. Is that immunum? It's part of our faith, and our faith and our belief in that. But if you believe in a soul, you believe in that God is just... It's almost logical. It makes sense. It makes sense that, that why would... Correct. Correct. And that suffering does cleanse our, our soul. That's right. That's right. Okay. So let's finish this first paragraph. Uh, these are just a couple of places. And again, his list is even longer. I cut it down. These are just some of the places which describe the notion of Gehenim, Vitsaro, and the pain, Vansho, and his punishment, Vigamara, Vimidrashim, in the Talmud, in the Medrash, Umadadu is Tachnis, 
um, and, it, and it measured its, uh, its measurements, Udvarim and these matters, these, discuss, these statements, in Litlos Osam, Bimashal, don't assume that they are a parable. Sheriskiro Mikomo, Midaso, describes actual physical locations and sizes. Arko Varachbo, length and width. Vidano Lovely Indian Esser And its measurements and, its, and, and, and things which are impact, understanding where hell is, impacts halacha, impacts Isser Vahetar. And therefore, he says, it must be, as we were just describing, hell is a physical place. Now, what challenge do you have if, if, if hell, why, is this sitting well with you? No, why not? Scary. It's scary. Okay, fine. That's fair. It should be scary. I'm sorry. I don't mean, I, I, whatever. Scary in a healthy way. It's good. We, we, have to, we have to acknowledge that, you know, our, our life is impactful. Not in like where God is running after us, beating, beating us over the head, but our life is impactful. The decisions we make are impactful. So, yes, it, it, the, no, the, the fact that God teaches us about Gehenim, the fact that it's described, is meant to, I don't like the word scare, it just doesn't sit well with me, but it scares us, scare us. In other words, causes, you know, wake us up, wake us up. But why else wouldn't it sit with us? Yes? Okay, good. So where is it? You know, if this is a place... Mm-hmm. Right, so physically, like, have anyone, has anyone ever seen hell? You know, has anyone, like, you know... We could describe certain things, maybe. Yes? So, like, where is this coming from? Because nobody's ever come back to tell us. Right. The Torah does mention Gan Eden and mm-hmm. speak of Gan Eden, but is there anything in Shabbat 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 Okay, so, so two things. First of all, well, two things. One, we do have many, many of these things are based on psukim, which describe Sha'ol and other terms which are describing something which seem like in Tehillim, David Amalek. Again, so it could just be a... That's his feelings of maybe... It's more feelings of how he felt. Mm-hmm. You know, feeling the abyss or like where the right. allegory as opposed to the literal. Right. The literal is hard to... That's fair. I mean, again, uh, you know, so, so maybe one pasuk that, that does have certainly more to that is the pasuk about Korach. It does certainly seem to say they, it wasn't that it gets swapped up. But Shaol, and again, Shaol could just mean a dark abyss of sorts. That could be. That could be. You see, you see in the newspaper grounds that open, mm-hmm. sinkholes, that's kind of the way. The term, though, the term, the fact that they go down to Shaol, the fact that that's described. But fair, we could take all those, all those things. The Ramban is coming from a place where Mamari Chazal, are not taken in any less of a fashion than, than the Torah itself. But he is open to the fact, and this is, this is, you know, the Ramban, as opposed, you know, the Ramban is certainly open to the fact. It's more of a later uh, development. The Ramban is certainly open to the fact that Midrashim are allegorical and, and metaphorical. Very much open to that. You know, there's, there's a new, newer line of thinking which says, no, everything is going to be taken literally. Uh, but, but certainly the classical commentators were very comfortable understanding many midrash and many, many gemaras in, in, as a metaphor. But sometimes, and that's, that's why he's coming to acknowledge, not saying that's wrong intrinsically, saying over here, Chazal, at the very least, certainly understood that it was a physical place. So, you know, he would not call that thoughts. He'd call that part of a Mesorah, a, a, a tradition which clearly is not one day at one source, but a compilation throughout the Talmud, throughout the Midrashim, source after source, which seemed to endorse this notion of it being a real physical place. Yes? Here's the problem. If you, people believe that Gehenna is just a parable, like mm-hmm. it falls into question the whole issue of Schar and Onesh. How do you justify, you know, Schar and Onesh in terms if there is no Gehenna? What's the Onesh? Well, limited to the 
<coughs> absolutely. I, I, I cannot agree more. Meaning, yes, so uh, from a purely philosophical perspective, if a person believes in absolute justice in the world, I think you don't have to be a, a philosopher, a theologian to say that we don't see justice in this world alone. You know, our sages and the Ramban's thesis for the first half of this book is that the way to understand divine justice is to recognize that our picture is a snapshot and not the full picture. And only when we recognize there's another world is almost intuitive, I would, I would argue. If you believe in a God and believe there's justice and you believe that God is going to bring about that, that, that there's justice in the world, then there, there has to be something. There has to be some counter. Um, and this has been, you know, part of, part of his thinking. So... Um, he's not coming from a, from a purely philosophical perspective, but I, I agree with you. I think and if, if you don't believe in Gehenim, you know, again, it seems like, what is this? It seems like, oh, you only get reward? Like, how, how, does, that, how does that add up? It doesn't seem very logical. It doesn't seem, it seems a little too new agey, I think, for, 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 for our minds. Um, okay, so I think, um, okay, let, let's see what bothers him. So, so far, we've started some emotional issues, some scientific issues, um, some questions of sourcing, but let's see what's going to bother him. Let's go to the second paragraph. Elakachi Kabbalah Shabbasenu, okay? This is the tradition of our rabbis. Shekodesh Baruch Hu Bar God created souls. Okay, I'm going to skip that next word. And souls, what are souls? Okay, another question. What are souls? How do you define a soul, right? So these are the words used. It is a ruach zaka, like a, a pure um, um, spirit. Vidaka biyoser, very fine. Okay, eno guf, it's not a body. Vlonig belas, and not limited. Vlonig deras bemakom, and not limited to a space. Okay, so what's he saying over here? So let's, let's invoke Ramcha or Moshe Chaim Lutzato in Derech Hashem where he describes the following. Every single thing in the world that we know of, describe, other than God, is a creation. By definition, right, God, God is the one God and he created the world. By definition, every creation has some level of substance to it. Okay, so the most substantive, let's say, is, you know, in his, in his way of describing things, is like a rock. A rock is about as physical as it gets, okay? It's basically physical. It's just, it's there. It's heavy. It's a rock. Fine. On the, somewhere along the lines, okay, and we keep on going, and then we have life force, okay? But then we get to a place where we keep on moving on this con- same continuum, and at the other ends of the continuum, we have things like angels. Angels are a physical creation. They are not physical in the sense that we could touch and feel them, okay? They are something which are I, I, probably maybe the best English word is like ethereal. Is that, I guess, an okay word? Like something which is, which is, it's still physical. It's, it's still a creation. Think about it almost like gases, maybe. You know, and maybe as a, met, as, a, as a parable, as a metaphor. In other words, are, is gas there? Are there things in the air right now? Are there particles in the air? You know, we in this world are much better at, are, are there particles in the air right now that we can't touch and feel? Absolutely. There are little organisms flying everywhere. You know, who knows what's in the air right now? Uh, but the point is that they exist. We don't see them. We don't touch them. But they're just as real and physical. Would anyone tell you that, uh, that, that, that little pieces of, you know, little particles are not real physical existence? Of course they are. It's just that you need to have the right, uh, you know, vision to see them, but they're absolutely physical and real, right? So the way that the Ramchal understands angels is that they are daka. They're very fine. In other words, similar to particles. They're so fine, you can't even see them, but they exist. They're real, okay? And in some ways, they are, they are not bound the same way that we are by physical space, but there's still a creation. There's still something physical along this continuum, Okay, so it's a very, the words that they use because they don't have the same knowledge that we do about some of the things that are hard to see but with our own eyes, but basically they describe them as very fine creations, like fine flower, things that are very, very small and tiny. So angels are on the other end of that continuum. The soul is also like that. Okay, and let's keep on reading. Elamikas hamalachim v'na'alit biyoter. 
a soul is in the category of angels, but in some ways even higher, because we believe that our soul actually is connected to God himself. Okay, so it's of the highest level of creation. It's still a creation, but it's of the highest level of creation. Um, it's not the place to describe all that we know about it. The Pasuk tells us, the Pasuk, in describing the creation of Adam, uh, describes that Hashem blew a spirit of life. And our sages explains, that it was, so to speak, a soul of God, and not... A, a chain of causes. Okay, what does he mean by chain of causes? We're going to learn a lot of Kabbalah today. Everyone still with me? Is this, um, still over here? Still good? No? No? Okay. Okay. There are, the Kabbalists understand, you know, there, there are, that there are many levels to the world. Okay? That basically there's the highest level. I don't know what the highest level of creation is called in Kabbalistic literature. Okay, it's called Atzilut. Atzilus. Okay? Atzilut. The word Atzilut comes from the Hebrew word Eitzel. What does Eitzel mean? Like next to. Okay, it's next to God. Okay, basically it's, it's so lofty, it doesn't even have its own identity. Its identity is that it's next to God, but it's still a level of creation. And basically the way it works, at least the way the Kabbalists understand it, is that God creates something which is that, you know, we can't live in a world where we're directly connecting to God, for the most part. It'd be too intense for the world. It's imagine like you would take your, like a phone or a lamp and, you know, and you were to plug it, instead of into your wall, you'd plug it into like a nuclear power plant. You know what happens to your phone? It would blow up, right? So what do we do? We have a nuclear power, we have a power plant, and the power plant sends that electricity, someone here probably could describe this better than I can, into like those big fat, you know, those big boxes, and you know, around our, uh, the transformers, okay? And what they do is they break down the electricity into little packets, and then they bring them with wires into our house, break them down a little bit more, stick our, our, our plug into the, our charger, into the wall, and boom, you're able to get the electricity you need, but in much smaller packets. That is something along the lines of the way that we interact with electricity. So in this analogy, imagine God being that power plant, okay? If the world were to be directly connected to God, it would explode. Us physical beings, we, we can't coexist. It's too much. So God basically creates these levels, atzilut and other levels, veil after veil after veil, basically taking that electricity, taking the spiritual power and breaking it down and breaking it down and breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down until it comes to us. That's called ishtalshalus, literally mean like chains. That basically God creates something, the highest level is called forces, kochot, and then you have under that, you have angels, malachim, and then levels under that, levels under that, until we come to this world where we don't see God. If you're not looking for God, he's not there, right? You have to look for him because he's hiding, right? But basically it's broken down, it's broken down, it's broken down. There's one exception. That's what he's getting at over here. What's the one exception? Our soul. Our soul, he says, is direct from God. There isn't that normal intermediary. Rather, it's um, it was, I'm going back on that line, it was the soul of God who was given, and not from that uh, chain of causes. Okay. That the soul was created on the first day with the will of God. Okay, so our tradition is that although man, Adam and Eve, were created on which day? Day six. Our soul was created on day one. That's our tradition. Interesting, right? Okay, so God creates the soul. The soul is this very fine creation. Now he says, God, the same God who created the soul, created a place, which is called Gehenim. And God created a very fine fire, right? So when we think of fire, we think of that thing that comes out of our matches and things come out of our oven. He says, no, there's another type of fire 
which is further down the continuum, which is very fine, which you can't see. Okay? It is not physical in the sense that it, um, okay, not physical. But it's able to connect the soul and destroy them or burn them. And God placed this faculty, this power of fire in that place. Just like God placed the angels in heaven. Still with me? Okay, we're learning a lot of complicated concepts. Okay, so what's he describing over here? He's saying, look, does everyone here believe in a soul? You don't have to... We believe in this thing. Where, do, where is it? Okay, and we're going to get into that question of where is our soul in a moment, okay? But, but the bottom line is we believe that there's this existence. Many of us, our tradition certainly tells us, there is some existence which is not... We can't touch and feel, but we know it's there, okay? So the same, in the same respect, you know, you could also have a fire that's there that you can't touch or feel, right? But it's still there, and it's still very real. And that fire which is very, very fine, just like our soul is very fine, so to speak, they interact with one another. That's how he describes Gehenim. So what he's telling us is that there is a place called Gehenim. Scientifically, we haven't found it, but guess what? Up until like 100 years ago, or whatever, I don't know exactly, you know, we didn't know about a whole bunch of stuff, you know, molecules, etc. You know, so, well, okay. I didn't do well in science. Okay, bottom line is, we, with so many of, you know, we're learning about so much that we didn't see prior, right? So, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying we will see it because it's not a scientific thing that could be seen with scientific eyes. I'm not suggesting that scientists are one day going to see angels. But the same way angels exist, and angels could be in a certain place, you could have a fire that exists and exists in a certain place. It's just not the fire that we know of. But it's a fire in the sense that it burns things, and it will burn a soul. So he's saying it is a real thing in a real place, it's just that we don't have the eyes to appreciate, to see these very fine, sensitive, small, subtle fires that exist, these heavenly fires. Any questions? I know there's a lot to digest. No? Okay. Let's go. Let's go further then. And our sages, the third paragraph, the last lines of the, of the first page. The English is on the other side. Our sages distinguished between the fire that we know of, okay, in this world, and the fineness of the fire that exists in Gehenim. Amru B'Psachim, the Gemara B'Psachim says, Or Didan Ivri B'Motzei Shabbos, our fire was created on Motzei Shabbos. We have a tradition, that's why we have the Havdalah candle. Our tradition is that Adam and Chava discovered fire on Motzei Shabbos, Saturday night. After Shabbos, it got dark. They didn't know what to do, and they rub two sticks, two rocks together, boom, they have fire. So our fire, the first fire, came about Saturday night. But our sages tell us in, in, in Psachim that the fire of Gehenim was created on day two. Okay, and now he tells us a very interesting tidbit. Vein Suffolk, and there's no doubt, Achare Hamemra Hazos, after this statement, they want to elevate the fire, Ahahi. They want to elevate that fire. And they want to make it very fine. I'm going to change from the word fine to something very spiritual, but still in existence, still physical. To the point that the Gemara describes it being created on day two. Our tradition tells us that which day were the angels created? On day two. Right? So Gehenim, the fire of Gehenim is created on the same day that the angels are created. Have you ever seen an angel? No. Have you ever seen Gehenim? No. If you accept angels could exist, you could accept that Gehenim exists. And by our sages telling us that they were created on the same day, telling us they're made up of the same stuff that we can't see. It's still a creation. It's more physical than God. God is completely abstract. 
God is completely beyond any physical limitations. But angels and the five Gehenim are real. And here's the tidbit he tells us that every, it's known in the creation that the, the things which are created first are more spiritual because they're closer to the prime cause, God. So he says that from a perspective of spirituality, the earlier we are in the creation, the more spiritual it is. So for whatever this means, light, you know, on the first day, this creation of light, it's a, our sages understand it's actually a spiritual light, right? The sun's not created till the next day, right? So, so later. So there's this notion that, that the earlier it is in creation, the more spiritual it is. So he's telling us the fire of Gehenna was created on day two. What is the Gemara telling us? It's telling us that it's some spiritual, physical, spiritual existence. It's real, but it's very spiritual. Okay, so it's not a fire. When we see pictures of, so let's go back to the imagery that we have of the fires of Gehenna, of hell. Okay, are those images correct? You know, and again, you don't typically see Jewish sources painting these pictures, but in Christian pictures, they're correct and they're not correct. They're correct in the sense that there is a fire, but they're incorrect in the sense that it's not a fire as we know it. It's like painting a picture of an angel, right? Those pictures of angels, what are, are they? Are they accurate pictures? Probably not, right? Are angels, do they look like uh, little Gerber babies with wings? Probably not, right? Um, but, but whatever, this is the image that we use. So it's a fire, it is a fire but it's not the fire that we think of when we think of a fire. It's a fire in the sense that the property is a fire. It burns, but it's something different. Okay? Let's keep on reading. Um, <clears throat> God, has in his abilities. We're at the last line of this, uh, this first paragraph on the second page. To create a very fine fire. It is not a physical um, entity in its regular physical sense, but it's still able to burn dvarim dakim, very fine things, she'enam guf, which are not physical, umechalos them, and it destroys them, she'nachasha la'achar she'yodah b'riyas ha'nefesh, he says, once you accept the notion of a soul, he says, then there's no jump, there's no leap to accepting the notion of a, phys- of a, of a spiritual fire. If you could believe in a soul, which is also a creation of some sort, then there's no leap to understanding that there could be this spiritual fire that impacts the soul and the soul alone. Is everyone with me? Yeah? Okay, let's keep on going. And this is the question I was, I was hoping that someone would ask. If you ask, How do you put a soul in a place called Gehenim? In other words, until now he'd say, okay, Gehenim has a doorway in Tiberia, in the desert, in the sea, and it has these dimensions. How do you stick a soul into a physical place? It doesn't work. Okay? So he says, if you ask that question, I'm going to answer you with all the depth of the Greek philosophers. Okay, fine. Sha'omrim, who say, the Greek philosophers say that the soul is not limited to a place. The Greek philosophers, he's going to come and argue them. The Greek philosophers, if I were to ask, let's pause right here. Where's your soul? Everyone seemed to nod when they said they have a soul. Where's your soul? Where is it? In your head. Okay, great. Head. It's in our head. That's it. No wrong answer. It's, uh, no one knows who you are when you're speaking on this. That was Estelle, by the way. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay. So we don't know. We believe in a soul. We believe in this. We know the difference between life and death. We know that there's something that's animating us, right? But where is it, right? So the Greek philosopher said they were, they were philosophers and, and, and they believed that the soul cannot be limited to a head. They said, what do you mean? A soul is a spiritual entity. They believed in something spiritual, but by definition, they said, it can't be limited to a place. Okay? 
Um, it, it's not limited to the head or the heart. It's just parables. That's how the Greeks understood the notion of the soul. They believed in a soul, but the soul is too abstract to be limited to a physical place. That's the Greek approach. So uh, the Ramban doesn't like this. He says, he says, is it, it, it must be that this thing called a soul, okay, of Ruvain, Ruvain has a soul and a donkey has a soul, right? Donkeys are living beings. Are you going to tell me, if you tell me that souls are not limited to a place and just souls are this big abstract thing, you're going to tell me that, how is it possible that Ruvain is, it has the exact same thing and is connected to the exact same thing that the donkey has in terms of its soul? That doesn't make sense. It has to be. Let's keep on reading. You'll, get, you'll see what he's getting at. Vishalotia nafshi. He says, is it possible, those who disagree and say the soul is not limited to any particular person, it can't be, because we are physical and we are limited by space, and they argue that a soul is too abstract to be limited by space. He says, if that's the case, then, and you believe in a soul, then you're one I have a soul, you have a soul, and are, am I connected to my soul more than your soul? Or would we have the same soul? How does that work? Right? Via mishkana bibim koma, Okay. Excuse my <coughs> throat today. Um, he says, it, it's impo- if you believe in a soul, if you disagree with a soul, cool. And there's certainly many who do nowadays, not back then. But if you acknowledge a soul as they did back in the day, and you want to say a soul is too spiritual to be limited to a physical place, and yet you want to tell me donkeys have a soul, leaves have a soul, people have a soul, I have a soul, you have a soul. So what distinguishes my soul from your soul? Wouldn't it be logical to say that in some way there's a connection between me and my soul and the leaf and its soul and the donkey and its soul? You can't have it both ways. If you disagree with the soul, fine, but he's not dealing with that. He's saying if you believe there's a soul, there must be some unique connection to me. And the donkey must have be uniquely connected to its soul, right? And that's what he's getting out of here. Okay. <coughs> what resides, excuse me, <coughs> what resides in this physical thing, meaning my physical body, and connects it, the soul between me and my body, He says like this, just like God is able to somehow connect the spiritual thing to this physical place. I have a soul. You have a soul. Your soul is somehow connected to you. Is it in your mind? Is it in your heart? Is it connected by a little string up to the heavens? I have no idea. But the bottom line is that each and every one of us are somehow connected. Our physical, we walk. If you, last week I was on the West Coast. When I was on the West Coast, my soul was on the West Coast. How did that work? I didn't, you know, like what's going on? Clearly there's some connection, some physical connection between me and my soul, right? So somehow God is able to limit this soul to a physical place. Make sense? Once you accept that, then there's no big leap, he's saying, to accepting that God could take that physical, that soul, which could also be in a physical place like my body, and put it in this place called Gehenim. Right? There's no leap. It's basically the same principle. Right? So he's just trying to argue this point, which, again, maybe some of us have a hard time seeing, 
And that is that the bottom line is he's describing um, the, the, the soul as, sorry, Gehenim as something which is physical. It's a fire. It's a spiritual, it's, it's a fire which we cannot see, just like we cannot see the soul, but the soul is a real existence. There is a fire which is a real existence, which we cannot see, but it impacts the soul. It's in a real place. It has real dimensions. That's the argument. That is what he's presenting to us. Okay? Let's go a little further. Okay. Nope. He has a soul that gets dirty. He has a soul that gets dirty, right? In other words, we have, you know, we, we have this notion of Yetzer Tov, Yetzer Hara. That's not two souls. That maybe we'll get to in a later point. But, but we have one soul. We have one soul. And our soul, we, we make, and our soul gets impact. Our soul is what animates us. And we get, we sometimes make good decisions, sometimes make bad decisions, but it's all one neshama. Yes? Mm-hmm. So if that's what gives him life, then obviously it's what connects him to Hashem. So if, if that's what gives the physical, the spiritual is what gives the physical its life. You're saying this is, so are you, you're arguing with the Ramban? Or you? I'm saying he doesn't have to go through all this convoluted argument. <laughs> argument. That the same, the same way that God put a soul into a physical body? Correct. He's, he, his focus is not the soul. His focus is to say, just like you said that, and you accept that, let's take those same principles and apply them to this fire of Gehenim. That, that's, that's the novelty. And that, I, I just, again, maybe my, my, my lack of education, no one else speaks to. Like, and he's just the only one unpacking all these statements and basically saying exactly what you just said. And when we speak it out, it is, I don't think, I agree with you. I don't think he's saying anything which is, which is over the top, but at the same time it is. Like, again, I don't know what we thought about Everyone's pretty quiet when asked what does Gehenna look like and what it is. And, and he's helping us understand that, you know, use the soul as your starting point, both in terms of something which is real but cannot be seen, and both in terms of something which is uh, spiritual and yet limited to space. So he's using the soul, which we have a much easier time with, and that's exactly your point, and using that as the, 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 the starting point or the, the, the place we jump, the, the place we're able to begin our conversation about what Gehenna is. To get ahead of him. Right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. Okay, yes, Tina. I heard one time that the soul hovers closer to the earth after, after someone passes the first year. So after that, where does the soul go? Yeah, it's it's it, it, yeah. There, there certainly are. You know, he doesn't address that over here. Um, there there are. You know, the the way he addressed it was saying that typically a soul is going to spend some time in Gehenna, which is, by the way, closer to Earth. It would seem, and then eventually go to Gan Eden. That, that's that's the way that's the way he's describing it. Are there sources that say it's at the at the kever and you know at, at the burial spot and other things? There there are certainly sources to that effect. He doesn't get into that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So let's 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 try to wrap this up. He says like this. Now we're going to talk about one more punishment, and then we'll talk about happy clappy stuff uh, next week, hopefully. Okay. And now Okay. Now we're going to describe another more severe punishment than Gehenim is the soul is existent. And it's getting burnt. It's getting suffering. And then eventually it gets cleansed and it goes to Gan Eden, hopefully, right? There is the most severe punishment and that is something called kares. Vube'emes avadan hanefesh. Kares is the cutting off of the soul. Basically, soul no longer exists. That's the worst punishment in the Torah. Where basically a person commits certain crimes and there is no afterlife. 
The person basically, their soul gets cut off from its source. And just like an animal, after an animal dies, we believe that its soul basically dissipates. It's gone. So too, kares, it's gone. That is the most severe punishment. And imagine that. You lived your whole life and the ultimate goal is closeness to God. No, there's no... You, you don't get the after party. You don't get, well, the, the main party. You don't get to, to go and connect to God. You lived in this physical world and that's it. Okay? This matter. Um, okay, you know what? Let's, uh, I think we're running a little short on time. So maybe let's just skip this next, next paragraph. Uh, yeah, let's skip this next paragraph. Let's skip this next paragraph. Okay. Um, let, let's just jump to the next page and we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit more about Gehenim. Okay, so basically just to know, you can read it to yourself, but basically to know that kares is the more severe punishment. And again, kares means a person's soul is completely cut off. That is the most severe punishment possible. He does point out, I'm going to summarize actually because it's worth summarizing because it could be a little scary. If you look at the different things that a person can get kares for, um, it's a pretty wide list. It's not, not such a small list. Um, and he does say like this, he says that there are two types of kareses. One is the cutting off of the soul. The other is a person dying at a younger age, like, quote-unquote, prematurely. You know, in other words, at a younger age. The, he says that depends on our balance of mitzvos, that's the type of karis that we'll get. In other words, if a person committed a, 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 a sin that involves the punishment of karis, so if they mostly have sins, then God will give them some reward in this world, and then they're going to go to the world to come, and boom, their soul gets cut off. See you later, Okay. Terrible. That's the worst. Okay. Alternatively, if a person has many mitzvos, but they did commit a, a, a sin, which involves kares, such a person will get punished in this world by, heaven forbid, dying at a young age. And then they'll still be able to get, they, they won't get kares in the afterlife, which is again, from our perspective, although, you know, it's one of those things we keep on going back and forth. Dying young is such a terrible thing. And at the same time, it allows and enables their soul to live on. Right? So it's that, that, that give and take. And that's, that's the two pathways for Kares. Okay? Any questions? You can read the paragraph to yourself after. But that's the basic point. Let's come back to... <coughs> let's come back to Gehenim. He says like this. Ha'onesh hazeh. This punishment. Shal Gehenim of Gehenim. Miyad hu bala adam. And this, Dina goes to your point. After a person dies, Gehenim comes immediately. La'achar misa, after death. Techef Rasha mes, after a Rasha dies, and it's not just a Rasha, but anyone who has sins that needs to be cleansed, nafsho miskasheres begalgal ha'esh, a person's soul gets connected to this ball of fire, umisham nitzmidis lenar shalaesha yotzmitachskisiyakavra, then connects to this river of fire which comes out from the throne of glory. In other words, the fires of Gehenim come from this very lofty place. After a person sins, they go to that place. Hanefesh azu achozeres lisoda ha'esh, um, this person's soul connects to this fire, okay? Okay, so this is the key line over here. You know, we've been describing the punishment of Gehenim as something which is somewhat akin to a burning fire. Put your hand in a fire, it hurts. Your soul goes into the fire of Gehenim, it hurts. But here he starts to describe more of a psychological factor. He says, what happens? A person dies, their soul, where does a person's soul come from? What did we say before? From Hashem, right? A person, right? Basically, our, our soul is godly, right? So there's this general idea that you find in, uh, in, in Greek philosophy, in ancient philosophy, that things want to return to their source. 
right? So basically, you know, ruach, spirit goes back to spirit, fire goes to fire, you know, everything goes back to its source. So as long as the body and the soul are stuck together, and Elias, you said, God kind of threw us together and made us stuck together, okay, our soul's stuck. But after we die, it's no longer stuck to the physical body. Where does the soul long? Where does it want to go? Back to God. As close to God as it could get. What's that place in this world? It's called Gan Eden. That's the closest the soul could get to Hashem. So our soul is longing to come to that place. The problem is, the problem is, and this is the next line, he says, ve avonos, ve achatayim, However, due to the, the, the thickness, literally the thickness, but the tarnishing of our sins, it holds us back. In other words, if our soul, soul is pure and pristine, after it leaves the body, boom, it just goes immediately up to its source, it connects to God. But it, our soul, unfortunately, gets weighed down. It gets dirtied and it's unable to go and connect immediately to Hashem, right? The, some of the imagery of Gehenna being a low place, right, is exactly this. The notion is that our soul is weighed down by our sins. Our soul desires to cling to Hashem as soon as we die. But if we sin, and, you know, then basically the more we sin, the more that's holding us back and pulling us back away from Hashem. So he's described, and, and therefore what? And the words we missed before is that, um, sorry, um, there is this desire of the soul, to go up. And what he's describing over here is not just the physical pain of the fire, but there's also an emotional and psychological pain that the soul is yearning to go where it needs to go. It doesn't belong there, right? You ever find yourself somewhere like, I'm not supposed to be here. What am I doing here, right? I want to go home. Or I was just speaking to someone who's like in a hospital. They're miserable, right? It's not your home. You feel terrible. I want to go home, right? I don't want to be here, right? So it's not just the physical pain of Gehenim, but what he's describing over here is a psychological pain as well. The soul yearns, or the entirety of our existence is a desire to come close to Hashem. That's what our soul wants all the time. You know, every time we do a mitzvah, we're releasing something for the soul. Rav Cook writes beautifully, he says, our soul is always trying to speak to God at all times. It's trying, it's trying, it's trying. When we daven, we kind of give words to our soul's desired tefillah, right? But it speaks to this notion our soul is constantly yearning for connection, for closeness to God. Every time we do a mitzvah, it feels good for the soul. The soul, ah, I, I feel like I released a little bit. I feel like I'm able to do, to be where I want to be, right? When we sin, it, it puts up walls, and the ultimate wall, and, and that holds us back from Hashem. The ultimate wall is that when we die through our sins, it holds us back. And therefore, it's not just this physical, spiritual pain of Gehenna, but the real pain of Gehenna is also the fact that our soul so much, and now is no longer bound by our physical body. It's able to just sit in Ganesin and enjoy itself, but it can't. Through the actions, the mistakes that we've made, it holds us back, and until we're able to be fully cleansed, our soul is not able to connect to Hashem. So, to quickly summarize, according to the Ramban, and it would seem according to our tradition, this is the, you know, I would say a pretty authoritative view, is Gehenim real? It's as real as angels are real. Okay? We believe in angels, we believe in Gehenim. Is Gehenim in a physical place? The answer is yes. The same way that our soul is in a physical place, Gehenim is in a physical place. Okay? Can we see it? Can we touch it? The answer is no. Does it hurt in some way physically? Is it like a fire? Yes. In addition to the physical pain, there's also an emotional, psychological pain of the soul longing to connect to Hashem, and especially after death, when it's finally ready to come close to Hashem, if we haven't lived a good life, if we haven't done tshuva, if we haven't tried our best to cleanse ourselves, then our soul not just gets physically burnt, but also feels the emotional pain of that distance from Hashem.
Okay, so hopefully, I think, I hope, we walked away with a bit of an understanding of what Gehenim is. And again, next week, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, pick up a new topic in the Ramban. Have a great day, everyone. Take care. Take care.